Many times, Miss Bowling has said, uh, I, you know, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And no offense to y'all, but those prayers count like five times more than anybody else. So I'm super grateful for you, Miss Bowling, and I'm glad that you get to be here and that the Lord has brought you here today so we can sing happy birthday to you. Um, ben, if you could come up here. Uh, I want to introduce to you Ben Lillard. Um, ben is one of our ruling elders. Uh, I have asked many times uh, for our ruling elders to take the pulpit and preach, and most of the time, all of them say, no, thank you very much. Uh, and Ben did not respond that way. Uh, so Ben, is he was supposed to preach about a month ago and rudely got COVID, and um, now is ready to step in and take on our next text in the in the book of Acts. Um, we really believe that I am not called to be the only person who leads and cares for and pastors in this church. All of our that's true of all of our elders. One of the qualifications of elders is that they are able to teach, and that doesn't mean that they always teach from the front. You've seen mostly they don't, but. I really believe, we really believe that Ben is more than qualified to do just that. In addition, uh, it is good for you to understand that God gives many gifts to his body and in his body that I am not the only one who is able to talk about the Bible. Many people in our church are able to do that. And you need to see and to hear and to profit from that. I'm excited to have Ben preach what I hope is the first time. And not it the, is the first time. It is the first time, but hopefully not just the first time uh, and not, not the last time. Um, so I, would, I can tell you my personal experience. When I was 20, 21 years old, uh, this church in a bar uh, let me preach and be bad at preaching for years. And I profited from that. And I'm confident that Ben is far ahead of where I was. Uh, 20, when I was 20 years old. And I'm really excited to see what God does in him and in us as he brings this gift of, of preaching the word this morning. So I appreciate you uh, being hospitable towards him now and uh, feel free to just pat him on the back afterwards and just tell him he did a great job because that's what you're going to think. I'm confident of that. No pressure. Do anything drastic. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was supposed to announce this. Thank you. Two things. The first thing that uh, Miss Priscilla just reminded me to say that we want to do announce and celebrate Linda Rice is by all tests cancer free now. <laughs> We're super excited about that. She still has to receive treatment for a while, and we'll probably need to receive some form of treatment uh, indefinitely just because of, of her genetics. But we're glad things are off the scans. We're really excited about that. And the second thing is, uh, uh, I, I think a couple days ago, maybe three days ago, John Walter Gamble, the little baby that we prayed for, he was discharged from the hospital in Raleigh. They hung around for a few days just to really make sure, make sure that he's doing good. And uh, we believe, Chad said, that they're checking out the hotel today and coming home. So super excited about that as well. 
Thanks, Anthony. Um, as Anthony's touched on already this morning, it is, uh, it is a joy and a pleasure to be here with all of you, and I hope that you feel the same way about being here with each other. Um, to have the opportunity to share with all of my sisters and brothers um, is an honor that I am not worthy of, and I'm not going to make it through this without crying for the next however long I'm up here. Um, uh, many of you I've known for, for a number of years, and all of you I hold a great deal of affection for, um, so I thank you for the opportunity, and uh, especially thanks be to God for his people in his church, right? Um, I, uh, I ought to make, this, make use of this occasion to say something, it being the last day of Pastor Appreciation Month, um, and also the fact that I have the mic, um, to say something about Anthony and Aaron, and frankly, I just love you too much not to say something given the opportunity. So um, Tiffany and I, my wife, have been here for nine years, uh, a big chunk of the time that you have been the pastor. Um, and you're the first pastor that, that either of us in our adult life have been with long enough, and I'm also going to talk as if Aaron's here, um, that we've been with the pastor and his wife long enough to see you grow and also be able to reflect on how you have helped us and other people grow. Um, it's likewise been a blessing for you to be a part of our daughter's lives, to be one of the first people to pray over them after they were born in the hospital, to baptize them when they were still very small in our arms, to, to teach them directly and indirectly, um, and just being the people that you are in their lives in an identifiable way. Um, all of these things and more are worthy of our reflection and our thanksgiving. Um, and I'm not done. Uh, <laughs> a few things that I appreciate most about you, Anthony, uh, not just your giftedness in preaching, I know that comes up a lot, um, but that your preaching always comes back to the gospel. Um, the first time or two that we came to this church, that was very clear. Uh, I think you preached one time, and Zach preached one time, and both of you did the same thing. Um, and for many of us, having spent years in other churches, can speak to the fact that that's all too uncommon um, from the front of the church every Sunday. Um, and that this habit is born out of a fundamental understanding of why we're all here to begin with, um, has fed all of us as sheep of the true shepherd um, countless times, and it's an immeasurable blessing. Another thing I appreciate about you is your discipline, or your disciplines, uh, particularly your willingness to continually submit yourself to other people in the church, to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, um, to be humbled, and uh, ultimately to be more like Jesus. Uh, a third thing that I appreciate about you is um, your friendship and your accessibility. I know you said one of the last two Sundays you think you're a terrible friend. Um, but despite your busyness and how that has grown and changed over the last 10 years, um, I can honestly say that I have never felt like you were too busy or too preoccupied for me to call or text, for you to be my pastor and for you to be my friend, and I appreciate all of those things. Um, for Erin, I appreciate her genuine and generous heart um, when my path crosses with hers, I always feel like I have had a conversation with my sister. Um, I think most of us feel that way. Um, we know that her character and her genuineness and her grit have sanctified you. 
and we've all benefited from that. Um, and there are other things about her, like her ability to talk to and teach any one of our kids or all of our kids as if they're, our, they're her own child. Um, all of these things have also helped to shape Valley Hope Church. So, Erin, uh, know that you, wherever you are, are seen. If not literally, you are seen and appreciated. Um, and, and I love both of you. Thanks. So, let's get to the scriptures as our dear pastor would. If you will, turn to Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Some kind of strange stories here and, and a good chunk of reading, so bear with me. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia... Two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you have known that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God made with, God's made with hands are not God's. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together." Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the efficacious work that you do in us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, and the grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask that you would open our ears, that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your word, that you would not let our experiences today in your word, in our worship, um, that you would not let these be left here in this place or here in this time, but that you would be glorified by them. Would you teach us and instruct us now, Jesus? Amen. So we've been in Acts for quite a while. Um, we've seen this sort of new thing come up, uh, the church after Jesus' ascension. Um, and all the while we've been being reminded by the apostles teaching that, that this isn't really a new thing. This is how God has been working primarily through the people of Israel for many generations and how he has actually been working since before the beginning of time for all of humankind. Um, as we approach the end of Acts, as we've kind of uh, pivoted a little bit, uh, Paul's on sort of a farewell tour. He's going back and he's visiting all of these congregations that he has helped to set up and helped to empower by sharing the gospel, by teaching about baptism and the Holy Spirit and all of these things. So he's going back and, and visiting them to hopefully continue to increase their maturity and whether they know it or he really knows it or not, to prepare them for some really difficult times ahead. Um, so in, in modern metaphor, what's happening in Acts, uh, really all through Acts, but especially now, is God is kind of upgrading the operating system. He is uh, constantly making changes, constantly making improvements um, in the same way that we see on our phones or computers or whatever. Hopefully these are good changes. Um, and we see in Acts that it certainly is. We see people are being added. We see that there is a greater depth of understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures. Um, one of the things that's changing here is, is that God is doing a great work that is affecting actual people, actual individuals, and kind of removing them from their circumstances where they have been comfortable for some time. Um, it says here, you know, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Um, and it says in verse 11, the first thing it says, God is the one doing these extraordinary miracles. There's a lot of focus on Paul. There's a lot of focus on some of these pagan folks here. But it's that God is the one orchestrating all of this stuff. Um, this ancient pagan context is full of all kinds of strange beliefs, full of uh, practices of magic, um, 
And I think we know this, but to be clear, we're not talking about anything fun. Uh, we're not talking about bunnies out of hats or pretending to saw people. We're talking about demon possession, exorcisms, uh, real spiritual entrapment. Um, and so again, one of the extraordinary things that we see God's doing with this is we're seeing that new converts are being made. Jewish converts from the synagogue, Greek converts from the public spaces are being taken out of those places and they're affecting their culture. Um, but God is doing all of these things through Paul by the name of Jesus. Um, so what happens here is, you know, these uh, Jewish exorcists essentially decide they're, they're going to try this incantation that seems really effective. They're going to use the name of Jesus and see if they can get a, a demon out of this guy. Um, however, not only does it not work, they end up terribly embarrassed, uh, potentially close to death. Uh, they are beaten and run away naked and afraid. Um, and this is serious, but it's also almost comical. These guys are, are trying to practice something that they don't know anything about. Um, and it really shows the ineffectiveness of, of what they're doing. Um, on a broader scale, it shows the ineffectiveness of what a lot of Jews are doing in the Roman Empire at this time. Um, and specifically for them, it shows the ineffectiveness of really every other power that is set up against the power of Christ. The exorcists, the magicians, um, they have no power because the magic has no power. Um, yes, it may have grips on people's lives, but it has no real power to restore anything, to give any sort of wisdom, um, or to give any life in these individuals or in the communities and the cities that they find themselves. What's happening here is that the kingdom of God, through the power of, of Jesus, is being established against the kingdom of darkness. And if we look at the full context of, of what's happening in Ephesus, we see this being set up as sort of an outpost of the kingdom, uh, similar to how Jerusalem has already been and how other places are being. Um, and what the kingdom of God does is it, it doesn't come to make these people or to make us feel warm and fuzzy, to feel happy about our lives. Um, it doesn't come alongside other gods or other ideas of truth. Okay, there's no syncretism in the gospel. The gospel and the kingdom of God comes in power, it comes in clarity and truth, um, and it comes as a kingdom over all other kingdoms. Uh, the power of God and his Holy Spirit over all other powers and spirits, and Jesus the king above all other kings. So throughout Acts, um, all sorts of ultimately impotent things are being replaced by the power and the glory of the life of the risen Christ. This is what Paul is preaching. This is what Paul is always preaching throughout the epistles, here in Acts, here in Ephesus. It's the power of the life of the risen Christ that he is preaching that is replacing and wiping out all the realms of the darkness of the kingdom of the world. Um, so these sons of Sceva, not, not realizing the true authority of Jesus, the true power of his name, hopefully they learn a tough lesson maybe, Certainly, some of the people who are practicing things here in magic and, and other things are, are learning a lesson because they confess their practices 
and they bring some of their materials, likely these scrolls and things, and they burn them. Um, you and I may, rem or if you're like me, you may remember that uh, back in, well, I don't remember in the 60s, but I remember this story, you know, John Lennon says, hey, the Beatles are more famous than Jesus, so everybody burns their records. Or you may have heard stories of, you know, people burning Kiss records or something like that, and screeching sounds and weird colors are coming out of these bonfires. If you haven't heard about that, we're not going to talk about it right now. Um, but, but what's happening here in Acts is something that's actually quite different. Um, yes, they're doing away with some of the garbage in their lives, uh, but they're making a sacrifice. They're making a real material sacrifice, a change um, that is likely costing them something in terms of their livelihood and their material security. I'll come back to that. Uh, we move on to the kind of the second part of, of these stories, uh, which is a little bit more famous, the riot at Ephesus. Um, again, Paul and his helpers, preaching in the, the power of the Holy Spirit, are teaching against all sorts of evil that have been normalized, magic, idols, polytheism, just to name a few, uh, telling people that they ought to move away from these things that have become the norm and rather move into the newness of the life of Christ, um, his baptism, and his Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is, again, what Jesus does. This is what the gospel does. It interrupts, it disrupts, it gets people's attention, and it changes some things. Um, here in this story, Artemis, this Greek goddess, she's a really big deal. Her temple, this temple in uh, Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's uh, massive, bigger than a football field. Uh, there's all kinds of merchandising, uh, false god worship, lots of transactions happening, all kinds of stuff. It's a really big deal in the ancient world, not just in Ephesus. Um, and the real concern we see, though, from Demetrius is, is not actually Artemis. He's not too worried about her honor, though he kind of touches on that. But it's really secondary to their wealth. Um, so what he says here is, is basically that, hey, our wealth, our way of, of living, our livelihood is being threatened here, uh, showing clearly that wealth and the apparent security it brings are their real God, not Artemis. Uh, this is what the Bible refers to as mammon. It's the idolatry of wealth. Um, so the problem for the people here in Ephesus is not so much, well, what's going to happen to Artemis, though there is some concern there. It's what's going to happen to my material security if this new belief system comes in. Because if we, if we change the city's belief system, if we change the city's religion, then you're going to necessarily end up changing uh, the way that people live with one another. You're going to change uh, not only what people buy and sell, you're going to change the way, the reasons for why, they buy and sell. Um, so this large group of people is gathered together, uh, not necessary with any, necessarily with any legal standing, as is kind of the norm in this time. Um, but what they're trying to do is, is a little bit normal. You know, they're trying to maybe have some kind of political or social discourse, uh, maybe decide some things, except rather than being marked by how some of these meetings go, these ideals of intellect and civility, uh, they get thrown into chaos. Um, rather than 
reaching some sort of conclusion or moving to some sort of conclusion, it says a bunch of them don't really know why they're there. They are so quick to react to uh, the effects of the gospel in their lives and in their city, uh, so desperate to have something to say about it that they end up in chaos. Uh, One commentator said, they literally do not know which way to go with the multiplicity of views being expressed. So the town clerk comes in here at the end. Uh, This is an elected official, and he basically says, hey, guys, let's calm down. This isn't that big of a deal. No one has hurt Artemis. No one has damaged her temple. Um, If she's a real goddess, there's nothing to worry about anyway. Um, If it becomes a big deal, we can certainly deal with it through the parameters of our social and political structures. Let's just not make such a big deal and get in trouble with Rome. Um, And in his address, uh, even though there at the end it seems to kind of fade in the story, it's not as exciting, right, as these guys getting their butts kicked by a demon-possessed guy. It's not as exciting as the riot. Uh, We see two important things um, in this address. One is we're reminded that Paul and the early church were not looking necessarily to provoke people. They weren't creating mobs. They weren't going out and vandalizing or tearing down other temples. Um, But what they were doing is they were undermining these false beliefs in in a much more fundamental way, at a much more fundamental level. Um, what we're seeing with Paul and with the early church is that their changes in lifestyle, they're giving up of foolishness, they're giving up of their sins, centering on Jesus, being oriented towards serving people in the name of Jesus. These lifestyle changes are speaking for themselves, um, and so they don't need to go out and vandalize the temples because they're already undermining the false beliefs by the new life of Christ. The second thing we're reminded of is uh, that it's easy sometimes to act as if nothing extreme is going on with the gospel. Uh, This town clerk is ironically saying, hey, we should be more worried about getting in in trouble with the Roman authorities for rioting, for meeting like this, than we should that this guy Paul or any of his teachings are actually going to affect our lives. And of course, we see that ironically, for the next 300 or so years, Christianity provides uh, the greatest opposition to the Roman Empire. And this idea that the gospel is no big deal, uh, that it has the potential to affect nothing, um, is foolishness. The gospel disrupts, divides, and destroys just as surely And so that it can bring peace, it can unify, and it can build up. This is the kingdom of God taking over. The good news for us is that Jesus Christ alone assures us of our identity. We are children, heirs in the kingdom, bought with a price. But this kingdom will tolerate no other kings. Not only does King Jesus ultimately demolish every other power that's arrayed against him and against his people, but he is actively searching those other kings out. He is actively searching out those other idols that you and I have made with our hands. 
So some questions for us. Uh, king Jesus, he's the only king, right? But are we, are we like these magicians? Are we trying to invoke the name of Jesus, claiming him as king, but not trusting him as king? Do we know him as our only true king in our lives and in the way we live our lives? These magicians in Acts 19 are faced with the silliness of their practices. Um, and in the light of Jesus, they realize that they have to get rid of some of their material stuff. Um, this is coming at a real cost to them. Uh, the number put here and talked about by a number of scholars is that it could be up to one person's annual wages for 137 years. It could be enough to feed more than 100 people's families for three to five years. This is no small uh, sacrifice on their part. They're divulging their practices. They're confessing uh, what they're doing because secrecy is key to the practice of magic, right? And we, too, are called to drag those things in our lives that are in dark, hidden corners out into the light because secrecy is key to the practice of our sin. Again, this is the kingdom of God taking over. What does it look like in your life and in mine? Are we, like the people in the second story, are we acting out of our own economic self-interest? Are we putting our trust, our security in our businesses, our jobs, our homes, even our families? Um, are our idols found in other things? Uh, the smartphone, right? Handheld, man-made idols, never more accessible. Um, or maybe we say, you know, I'm pretty good at, at not idolizing material stuff. I'm pretty good at being generous with my money, with not accumulating too much. Well, then maybe your idol is your pride, is your ego. Um, as Anthony reminded us last week, we are all experts at idolizing ourselves. Uh, much of 2021 has been, for me, um, kind of a shifting in my, my paid job. Uh, for a while, it was pretty internal, um, kind of reaching a, a climax of sorts when I knew that God would have me step into a different role at work. Um, so I made that change uh, to focus less on, on my career and more on other important things in my life. So I did a great job, right? I, I championing doing these things, making these sacrifices, and I did it. Uh, except that it doesn't work that way, or it hasn't for me yet. Um, because I can still hardly stop having anxiety about it. I can still hardly stop worrying about where I'll be 10 years from now, what my family can afford. And then the flip side of it, if I, if I don't go that way, is to go back and, and, yes, congratulate myself and idolize myself all over again. Do you see how pervasive this is? How quickly we go down one trail or the other. We get off of, of one rabbit trail of idolatry only to get on another. And this is just one example from my life. The question is, how many idols have we brought into this room? Why is it that almost every single thing 
in our lives is a potential distraction away from the face of Jesus. Um, you probably wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have thought, that Madonna would provide an answer to that question. But it's because we are living in a material world. <laughs> and <laughs> God forgive me that while my refrigerator is well stocked, I would give up 15 minutes of time with him, of time in his word, so that I can leave for Aldi when I planned to leave for Aldi. God forgive me that with every extra dollar, I would rather pad my emergency fund than to bless his church or someone in need with an extra gift. What are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Are we allowing ourselves to move into a position where we're actually being defensive against the gospel? Are we acting as if the gospel is really no big deal? Sin is so much more massive than we think. It has contaminated everything around us and that's why we have to be willing to give up everything as we examine our lives if we honestly invite Jesus into these lines of questioning what would you have me to do what would you have me to give up how is this thing a God rather than you uh, we're gonna be surprised that there is much that must be done away with we must burn our magic books our magic scrolls there's much that must be given away we must be willing to give up our, our self-interests, our idol-making, maybe even our money and our homes, all to serve others in the name of Jesus. We will be surprised if we honestly examine ourselves at the subtlety of our sin, and we will be surprised to see that it pervades every motivation and every action we will be surprised at how much we have to give up. But good news. I'm going to read the lines of a modern hymn that we actually sing sometimes. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. The good news is that when we are like these magicians, speaking Jesus' name but not believing it, God is gracious to us. He is gracious to us in the face of our own misunderstandings in our foolish and even evil practices. And we can again and again hear and respond to the powerful name of Jesus.
the good news of the gospel starts with the news that we can never do enough. We can never give away enough money. We can never destroy enough idols. We can never care enough about other people to lead lives that are actually effective. Our culture does many things, but one of the things it does is it says you can make a difference. Try harder. Care about the right things. Uh, talk to the right people. Associate with the right party. You can make a change. But you can't, and neither can I. We can never leave good enough lives, but Jesus has given everything. He has given everything for our foolishness. He has defeated every worldly power, even the ultimate or the seemingly ultimate power of death. So in these calendar days when death is a big deal, um, and don't worry, I'm not talking about Halloween or anything like that. But in these days when death is invited, when death is glorified, when we have idols and all sorts of other things set up in the name of or for the sake of death, I proclaim to you that we serve the living God. Jesus is alive today, and he has told us himself that he is the God of the living. Neither death nor the judgment of our great God have to be appeased because Jesus has already taken care of that. And he invites you and me to live with him free of worry, free of idols forever. It's only ever out of the outflow of the steadfast love of the Father through the work of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're able to see dramatic changes made in our lives, and in our communities. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus that way, uh, maybe he isn't the king of kings in your life. Uh, maybe you don't know him at all. Uh, maybe you've been dismissive, like I have, of the challenges that his kingship make against your own kingship. To all of us, because this is all of us at some point, the Father again says, come home. Come and see how good King Jesus is. Give up your worldly possessions. Give up your accomplishments, your desires, because they have no real power. See that the riches of the kingdom of God are far different and far greater than we could have ever imagined. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and you are worthy of praise. May we sing your praises continually because of your steadfast love, your forgiveness, your mercy, and your grace. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are all over the place. There seems to be nowhere that we are not distracted from your goodness even willingly, Lord. Would you come upon us in power, though? Holy Spirit, would you convict us of the areas of our lives that are dark, that are hidden, of our foolish practices? Would you illuminate these dark corners of our lives? 
Jesus, would you establish us, the people of Valley Hope, as an outpost of your kingdom in our community, in our valley? Father, would you help us to live lives that speak for themselves? Would you help us to shy away from the urge to convince people of what is right or wrong on specific topics, but rather first live by your power, living lifestyles centered around Jesus, directed towards serving others, lifestyles that speak for themselves. In all of these things, Lord, may we glorify you always. We thank you for the work that you are doing in us and with us and through us. Uh, And we look forward in hope that you will continue these things and bring them uh, to completion. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.